do you think you have what it takes? Do you think you'll make it to the end? Do you think you'll be able to graduate and get the degree you want? Do you think you'll be able to obtain the job you want? Do you think you'll remain faithful to your wedding vows? Do you think you'll complete the task, finish the project, finish the race, fulfill your ministry, keep the faith? In life, starting something certainly has its own challenges. With every challenge we face in life, we need the motivation to begin something, and then we need the sustained motivation to do what is required of us so that we don't give up. Such as, there is the needed motivation to actually begin doing your homework. There is the needed motivation to officially start that honeydew list your spouse keeps reminding you to get back to. There is the needed motivation to update your resume and begin applying for new jobs and prepare for a string of interviews to come. Whatever the end goal is before us, there is the needed motivation it takes to not only begin something, but to finish it. Which means that goal setting and deadline making requires some level of vision casting and some level of maintaining realistic expectations of that vision along the way. And maybe you've heard it from Zig Ziglar, who famously said, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. And we know this from our own experience, right? If we don't know where we're going or what we're trying to accomplish or what will be asked of us or what potential dangers could be in front of us, we'll most likely give up. We'll most likely get distracted. We'll most likely not finish what we started. We'll most likely not keep our promises. So whether you've decided to build your own house or renovate your kitchen, Try out for the baseball or soccer team. Lose 20 pounds by the time we reach summer. Read 12 books in a year. Get up early enough to exercise. Or commit yourself to be on your phone less. And work harder at being less distracted and more staying on task. Now, friends, all these goals and aspirations require a clear vision on where we're heading. And it requires the necessary motivation to not give up along the way. But what if the question was reframed? What if it was reframed to talk about our spiritual lives as Christians? What if the question of, do you think you'll make it to the end, was asked to you and I about our faith? Will you and I finish the Christian race? Keep the faith until our very last breath. One of the most rewarding but also challenging realities of being a pastor is that I get a front row seat in seeing people in our church both flounder and flourish in their faith. Both struggle and thrive. At any given week, some of our members are experiencing a huge growth spurt in their knowledge of God and love for the gospel. Uh, some are experiencing gradual victories over sin. 
They're loving the church, and they're helping others follow Jesus. We might say they're doing well. Yet with all in the same week, other members can be simultaneously wandering off the narrow way, becoming ensnared in a particular sin, toying with going back to their former ways and former habits of life when they cared little to nothing of obeying Jesus. We might say those members are in trouble. And as a Christian myself, I too face ups and downs and spiritual highs and lows in my own life. Before I'm a pastor of Christ's flock here at CCBC, I too am a needy sheep who belongs first and foremost to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now friends, just to kind of get real with you on Sunday morning, I don't think pastors say this enough, so I just want to go against the grain and say what I think should be normal from the pulpit. I face temptations to sin just like you. Like, you know that, right? Like, nod with me. At least you agree. I'm not superhuman. I haven't re- reached exempt status from sin. That's not until glory. I face temptations to be too confident in my own zeal, my own wisdom, my own strength, more than I am in God's word and in his grace to be given to me in my weakness. I face temptations to no longer fight the good fight of faith and instead just throw in the towel, give up. I face temptations to quit the ministry, to walk away from being a pastor. I face temptations to be a passive husband, a passive father, and a passive friend. I face temptations to be ashamed of the gospel. I face temptations to go along with the flow rather than lay down my life for the defense and proclamation of the gospel. Friends, so let's just all do a good old bear hug this morning. Kind of look to your left and right, just briefly, to entertain me. We have more in common together this morning than we realize So if you feel kind of left out, you feel like the oddball out, you're actually not all that odd. We are all messed up. We all need help. We're all weak. We're all inconsistent. We're all failures at different points throughout the week. Let's just go ahead and go, oh, I'm so glad we're at a church that admits that. Yeah, we're trying to be a real church, not a fake church, okay? This church is for sinners who see their need for a Savior. If you don't see your need for a Savior, you need to get up now and leave because that's not what we're about. We're helpless, we're weak, we're vile, and we need Jesus Christ. From the preacher in the pulpit to the church member in the pew, temptations to rebel against Jesus, distrust Jesus, deny Jesus, and even betray Jesus. Friends, these temptations swarm our lives like bees on a honeycomb. And the people who are most vulnerable to committing Some of the most egregious moral and spiritual failures in their life are those among us who don't think they could ever succumb to it. Oh, friends, never, ever say you would never fill in the blank. If it were not for the grace of God, we would be like the worst of sinners you've ever seen. Sinclair Ferguson has said it rightly. The first deceptive work of Satan is to deceive us into imagining we will not be deceived. 
So brothers and sisters, do you think you'll make it to the end? Ten years from now, will there be any among us no longer following Jesus? A hundred years from now, who among us will be in hell? Who among us will have heard the truth of the gospel, perhaps even joined this church, but sadly face the horrendous, awful, and dreadful consequences for their sin against God and their final rejection of Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Friends, if we want to finish the race, if we want to fulfill our ministries and our relationship callings, where do our eyes of faith need to be? Who must we remember and not forget? Who can assure us that we'll actually make it to the end when it's all said and done? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 496. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible and the chair back as a gift from our church to you. Mark 14. As we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we left off last time in Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. We left off staring at that vivid display of the humble yet vibrant faith of a woman named Mary. This was Mary who lived in Bethany, who was also the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she was the woman who showed up in Simon the leper's house. If you weren't here last week, you can check out that sermon. But to summarize the sermon in one sentence, we learned this. Mary poured out the most precious possession she owned on the person that was most precious to her. She poured out an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard as a form of personal love towards Jesus. Though she was belittled and harshly criticized by Jesus' own disciples, Jesus corrected them and commended her. Her sacrificial love for Jesus showed that she was focused on his salvific mission as the Christ more than his own 12 disciples were that had followed him around for three years. We concluded in last week's sermon with that daunting two-verse mini-biography of Judas Iscariot, one of of Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, Mark 14, as we learned, began with a timestamp of the Jewish Passover feast that was approaching, and then our sermon ended with that ominous description of Judas who deceitfully plotted to portray Jesus for money. Uh, Look back with me briefly before we begin our passage today. At Mark 14, verses 10 and 11. Mark 14, starting in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Our passage this morning picks back up from where Mark 14, 1 and 2 began in Jesus' Passion Week, his last week of life on earth. Uh, This is his final week, and we found ourselves staring at that last week, last week, 
And tonight, or today rather, we will be focusing on Jesus' last evening before he would be arrested, put on trial, and then horribly crucified before an angry crowd. Look with me at Mark 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body, do this. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung to him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is God's word. Is my volume on? I feel like I'm echoing. Are you good? You can just turn it up just a tad. If I'm too loud, you can turn it back down. In verses 12 to 16, we see how the disciples, in obedience to Jesus' instructions, would prepare for the Passover feast and the unleavened bread. Remember, these were Jewish men. We can safely assume they had observed the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread throughout their lives. Uh, We know that Jesus did. Uh, Jesus grew up in the home of Mary and Joseph, who would have made the journey to Jerusalem along with his half-brothers and sisters every year to observe the feast as a family. In fact, do you remember Luke chapter 2? We're explicitly told that around age 12, it's exactly what Jesus did with his earthly mom and dad. Listen to Luke 2, verses 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, They went up according to custom. 
If you're not familiar with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it harkens back to the days of Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt. God had raised up Moses as a mediator and human leader for his people. And after God had warned Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, of the severe judgments to come, if they did not let his people go, God had promised to deliver his people out of bondage and take them to the promised land, a land of blessing and abundance. God was their God, and they were his people. However, prior to the departure, that's what the word exodus means, departure out of Egypt, God had warned of a final and fierce judgment that would come upon the land. There were 10 plagues that God would bring about. On the 10th plague, it would consist of God himself bringing forth death upon all the firstborn of the land. That's both man and beast and all the so-called gods of Egypt. So if you would, hold your place in Mark 14. Uh, This might be very useful for you if you're new to the Bible, if you haven't read your Old Testament in a long time or maybe ever. Turn back quickly to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 28. We're not going to look at every verse in detail, but I want you to hear the significance of the Passover feast. And I want you to pay close attention to the details regarding the lamb that would be sacrificed the unleavened bread that they were exclusively to eat, and how they were to remember and retell the story of the Exodus to their families and subsequent generations. We'll be at Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, 
that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil, And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So in summary, the lamb to be sacrificed had to be a lamb without blemish, a male, a year old. That's verse 5. That means a lamb without defect, deformity, or sickness. A lamb that was very much healthy and in the prime of life. Its blood was to be on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses they ate within. And the sign of the blood itself would indicate that those in that household feared the Lord and trusted in his promise to deliver them to save them, and to bring them to the promised land. Thus, when the Lord saw the blood, did you notice that phrase multiple times? When he sees the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over the home and not destroy it in judgment. That's what verse 13 says. Thus, the blood of the lamb would cover those in the house, and they would not be condemned by the Lord. The bread they were to eat was not to be mixed with leaven, with no starter set aside to ferment. Too much time would have been needed to reach the necessary level of fermentation. Thus, we read that they were to eat this bread in haste. In other words, quick fast in a relatively short amount of time. The unleavened bread itself would also be a unique reminder to the Israelites of the specific hardships, challenges, difficulties injustice they faced while they lived in Egypt. But it also would remind them of though their afflictions were heavy, their deliverance was powerful. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 16, you don't need to turn there. 
Uh, Notice specifically how the Jews referred to the unleavened bread. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. All the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. That word haste, it literally means a hurried flight. Have you ever been running late to the airport and there's no time for coffee and food? There's no time to even make sure you got fully dressed and your hair was ready. You just ran to the front and said, just come on, let's go. And you're sitting there and people are literally walking out onto the runway into the plane. There's no time for questions. We got to go. That's how the Passover, that kind of urgency, that, that, that type of anticipation, they were to eat in that manner in light of what God was about to do. But did you notice also what the Israelites were to do? The first generation that observed it were not to keep it to themselves. They were to pass on the story. They were to pass on the baton to subsequent generations. In fact, they anticipated when moms and dads and uncles and aunts and grandmas and grandpas would observe the Passover feast every year, children would ask questions. So kids, it is good and it is right and it is humble of you to ask your parents questions about the Bible. Don't assume your mom and dad have all the answers or they're right all the time. Let me tell you a little clue. We're not. So parents, if your kids ask you a question about the Christian faith or the Bible or something said in a sermon, we don't want to squelch that. We want to invite those questions. And that's what would happen even in Israel. Mom and dad, what's with this lamb? What's with the unleavened bread? Why are we doing this every year? They were to tell them why. And they were to tell them the significance of what God had done for his people. Now go back to Mark 14. You've got the backdrop now, right? And here it is. It's the week of Passover, this annual Jewish feast. Thousands and even some historians say perhaps up to 2 million people could have flocked at one point in the surrounding and immediate areas of Jerusalem. Jesus, being a Jewish man who observed it his whole life, but also knows why he's there. He informs two of his disciples to prepare this feast for he and the disciples. And Jesus gives them very specific instructions for who to look for and what to ask in order to get everything ready for the feast. In verse 13, if you want to look down, uh, Jesus mentions that there will be a man carrying a jar of water. And in verses 14 and 15, he tells these two disciples that this man needs to be found and to find out what house he's going into And you need to request from the master of the house a large guest room, an upper room, most likely a wealthy home, that they could host all of these men for this supper. Mark doesn't mention the name of the master's house. He doesn't even mention the names of the disciples. However, when you read the Gospel of Luke, specifically Luke 22, verse 8, we're told that it was Peter and John that Jesus told to go get the preparations ready. So what do Peter and John do? They obeyed Jesus. They set out to find who Jesus said to find. 
And they asked what Jesus said to ask. And what did they discover? Look at verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Uh, Brothers and sisters, obedience to Jesus is the wisest way to live your life. Obedience to Jesus is the wisest way to live your life. Friend, is there a situation right now in your life where you know what God's word says you should do, but you're kind of digging your heels in the sand and not doing it? You're procrastinating doing what Jesus says, doing what Jesus has prescribed you to do? Maybe it's a toxic or ungodly friendship or a dating relationship that you should remove yourself from immediately. Maybe it's a person you need to forgive and resolve to move on from being bitter towards anymore. Maybe it's a job you need to leave and get one that's better for you financially, better for your family, possibly even better for you spiritually. Maybe it's a family in your neighborhood you need to stop avoiding and just have over for dinner. Get to know them better. Maybe it's a family member you should evangelize and share the gospel with. A church member you should serve and try to meet a practical need in their life. A friend you should send a word of encouragement to. Maybe you should join the church you regularly attend and plant your life there until God moves you elsewhere. For married couples, it could simply be Jesus telling us this. Husbands, go right now and love your wife. Dwell with her in an understanding way and serve her. Spend time encouraging her and praising her rather than comparing her to other women in your thoughts. Wives, it could be Jesus telling you, go right now and respect and honor your husband. Value him and support him. Spend less time criticizing him and more time assuring him you thank God for him. Go out of your way to show appreciation. Reaffirm your commitment to champion any evidences of God's grace you see in his life. Or maybe the Lord has put a unique stewardship opportunity right in your lap. God has blessed you recently with excess money, whether that was expectantly or unexpectedly. And then there's opportunities right now in your path to bless the church you're a member of or a ministry that you really believe in with those finances. Friends, whatever the situation might be that the Lord has put before you and I, friends, how are we responding to Jesus? How are we responding to our Lord? Maybe we're still digging in our heels. Maybe we're putting off to tomorrow and tomorrow and the next day and the next day what we know we should do today. Friends, if you and I are tempted to do that, We're doing exactly the opposite of what we train our children to do. We're toying around with delayed obedience rather than immediate obedience. We're tempted towards selective hearing in God's word rather than attentive and wholehearted devotion in his word. You see, John and Peter, think about the context here. They're not sitting in some hotel lobby drinking posh hot tea or something. They're in the midst of massive crowds flocking all over the place. It's, it's loud. It's busy. It's probably unusually stressful to navigate. Where's this man with the water on his head? 
Where's this house going to be? Is the master going to let us do it? Jesus, you've already done this whole go find a donkey that doesn't belong to us kind of gig. And we did that. But now, look at all these people. How are we going to find this man? How are we going to get access to this house? Remember, this is also a stressfully intense time in Israel. There are men that want Jesus dead. And if you associate with this man publicly, your head could be next. It's intense. It's stressful. This is more than some deadline you and I need to meet on Friday. They could be feeling like their lives are on the line. But you know what Peter and John did? Notice they didn't ask Jesus a bunch of follow-up questions. They didn't give Jesus pushback. They didn't make excuses. They didn't try to find a better solution. They didn't even tell Jesus they would pray about it. They simply obeyed. Immediate to all the unique and detailed instructions that he gave them. They obeyed Jesus. And guess what happened? They obeyed, and Jesus' words came true. Friends, that's why obedience to Jesus is the wisest way to live your life. He can be trusted. Now, as we move on from verse 17 and following, the disciples will experience a Passover like they had never experienced before. And friends, I hope this morning that you and I feel both the density of demonic darkness as well as the richness of God's love in these next sections. So, If you're here today and you're wondering whether it's worth it to give your life to Jesus or totally reject him wholesale right now, if that's honestly where you're at today, lean in and listen up. If you're here today and you're tempted to give up on following Jesus because the temptation to dive headfirst into some sin would be easier to do, The desire is too strong. The desire is too hard to resist. Friends, if that's where you're at, lean in and listen up. And if you're here today and you're wondering if you're going to make it to the end, you're wondering if you have what it takes to persevere in the faith, you have what it takes to keep the faith, you're feeling weak, if that's you, listen in and listen up. Friends, as I challenge us all with the opening questions in light of our next section in Mark's gospel, friends, if we're going to fulfill God's calls on our life, our relationships, our ministries, if we're going to finish the race, where do our eyes of faith need to be? Who must we remember in our daily lives? Who can assure us that we'll actually make it to the end? when it's all said and done. Friends, if you're taking notes, I've got three main points that will conclude the rest of the sermon. Number one, we see a devilish disciple exposed. We see a devilish disciple exposed. That's verses 17 to 21. Number two, we see a meal we must always remember. We see a meal we must always remember. That's verses 22 to 26. And number three, we see an overconfident disciple that will be humbled. We see an overconfident disciple that will be humbled. That's verses 27 to 31. And beloved, from our seeing, 
from our beholding, from our meditating on these three things, we should pray that God would use each one of them together for the joy and endurance of our faith in Christ. Let's look at that first one together. We see a devilish disciple exposed. The stage is set. The appropriate preparations have been made for the Passover, and the meal has begun. Look with me, starting in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Brothers and sisters, there's three things that can be true all at the same time in God's world. All right? So if you're like, like zoning out, this is where it's going to give you a little bit of theological headache, but it's super applicable if you just track with me. Three things can be true all at the same time in God's world. First, God is sovereign over all things, and he can be trusted at all times. God is sovereign over all things, and he can be trusted at all times. That's the first thing that can be true. Second thing that can be true, man is sinful, and he is responsible and accountable for all his actions. Man is sinful, and is responsible and accountable for all his actions. But we got a third one. You ready for it? Satan attacks and leads people astray when they least expect him to. Satan attacks and leads people astray when they least expect him to. Friends, in this brief section, we see there is a counterfeit Christian at the Passover meal. This intimate evening in an upper room where Jesus Christ our Lord is sitting among these men. There is a wolf in sheep's clothing. There is a fraud pretending to be a friend. We see a man who followed Jesus for three years in his public ministry, yet inwardly, inwardly, he never loved Jesus like a true disciple would. Judas Iscariot is his name. And friends, throughout Scripture, the spirit who inspired the holy text refers to this man over and over again as the same tagline. Do you want to know what it is? The one who betrayed Christ. But why? Why did Judas betray Christ? Why would he commit what some have said is the worst betrayal that has ever happened in human history? Well, to answer that question, it requires you and I read all four Gospels together. Together, the Gospels harmonize a complete picture of who this man was, his motives, and what was going on behind the scenes that human beings cannot see. So, 
You don't need to read Matthew 1.1 to, you know, John 21, etc. right now. You can do that in your own time. But let me give you a summary portrait of who Judas is and why he did what he did. You can jot these references down if you'd like to look up them later. Matthew 26, verse 15, says Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver by the Jewish Sanhedrin to have Jesus arrested. Likewise, John 12, verse 6, says he served as the treasurer among the disciples, but was a greedy thief. He loved money more than he loved God and loved people. Luke's gospel and John's gospel both also indicate that Satan had led him astray and influenced his heart to betray Christ. Now, why is that significant? Okay, so if you want to get a really rich understanding of what's going on in the Gospels here, remember what happens to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Before he has his first big open sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching throughout Galilee. Where is Jesus for a season before he comes out in his ministry? He's in the wilderness, right? Who's with him in the wilderness? He's got animals. He's not eating. And there's a tempter. Satan himself. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this fallen angel that knows his end is basically done, going to be thrown into the lake of the fire, is trying to do his best to kick Jesus off his path to the cross. Of course, Jesus resists all his temptations. The devil leaves him. Luke's gospel says, until an opportune time. We never see Satan ever go face to face with Jesus again in the same manner until now. He's getting closer to the cross Satan couldn't get him with the Pharisees. Satan couldn't get him with the religious Sanhedrin. He couldn't get him in the wilderness, but now he's going to try to get him in the inner circle. Friends, it's good to be reminded. If Satan and the evil forces of darkness cannot disrupt the church from the outside, the world, he will slither on in on the inside. Friends, that's why it's very important that when you show up to church on Sundays, be prayed up. Uh, There is real warfare going on. Listen to a few of these texts. Luke 22, verse 3. Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. John 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. John 13, verse 2, during supper, when the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. John 13, 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you were going to do, do quickly. Yet, we're told in all four Gospels that the betrayal of Judas, the kangaroo court of Pontius Pilate and the Jewish Sanhedrin, along with all the nitty-gritty details of how Jesus would suffer and how he would die, friends, without God being the author of evil or tempting anyone to sin, every minute detail of Christ's sufferings and crucifixion were pinned by the invisible, sovereign hand of God. Look at Mark 14, 21 closely. Look at it again, verse 21. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What was written of him? Friends, this is talking about the scriptures. The Spirit of God has been speaking through prophets and psalm writers all throughout the Old Testament, screaming that this day would come. Scriptures like Psalm 41, verse 9, that Brad read earlier about a friend turning against his friend. Isaiah 53, of the suffering servant. Psalms like Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 34, Psalm 69, Psalm 118, and others, they all prophesied of the betrayal, the sufferings, the rejection, the death, even the friend that would betray Christ, even the resurrection. All of it was written with the invisible hand of God. Friends, that's why Jesus could confidently say throughout his ministry that he knew he would suffer. He knew how he would suffer. He knew who would betray him, and he knew he would rise again. He even told his disciples that Judas was called the son of perdition, the son of destruction, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. John 17, 12. Beloved, why is all that important? Oh, If we're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, we all need to grow in our understanding of these dense, mind-boggling, yet faith-fueling realities for the rest of our lives too. So let me say them again. Three things can be true all at the same time while we live in God's world. God is sovereign over all things, and he can be trusted at all times. Man is sinful and is responsible and accountable for all his actions. Satan attacks and leads people astray when we least expect him to. So friends, if you or I face the betrayal of a friend, if you face an ugly divorce, a nasty church split, you see an adult child walk away from the faith, you get unjustly terminated from your job. Friends, instead of pitching a fit like a child who doesn't have a dad or mom that cares for them, we must preach these three truths to our hurting hearts. God remains sovereign and good and trustworthy at all times. Man is sinful and accountable for his actions. And spiritual forces of evil are real even if we can't see them. Welcome to real Christianity now. Now with all that said, I do want to take a few moments pastorally to bring to your attention how Christians can sometimes overemphasize one of those three things, more than they should. So, in a world full of sin and evil, let me make one asterisk that I think is an error many Christians make. We should not blame the devil on all our problems and temptations. We should not blame the devil on all our problems and temptations. Friends, let me give you a really clear theological point that sometimes we just forget about. The devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He's the Lord's devil. He's on a leash. 
He is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere all over the world at the same time. Only God is. The devil is not hiding behind every door in your house. He's not whispering on your shoulder every hour. And he's not attacking you every day. Friends, our sinful flesh is always within us. And it is always raging war inside us against the spirit who lives in us. So let's don't give the devil too much PR. He's not omnipresent, but my sinful flesh follows me everywhere it goes. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Or consider James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Instead of us saying, man, the devil was working on me overtime this morning, we might want to say, no, it's your selfish pride. Because Jesus says, if any man comes after me, let him what? Cast out devils? No, deny yourself. So let's just hold three things true in the Bible, but not overemphasize one or the other. Let's be a little more balanced as a Christians and help many Christians that are deeply confused on this topic. A one pastor I recently read said it very well. Listen to this quote. Quote, the strength of your temptation is proportional to the loves you have cultivated in your heart. You won't be tempted by what your heart hates, but by what your heart loves. Friends, do you understand something? Do not let Judas off the hook by saying, well, you know, the devil entered, entered him. I mean, that's pretty serious. You can't be blamed for something that the devil entered into you. No, that's terrible theology. That's horrible exegesis. The devil shows up at the end of the game for Judas. Judas has been sowing to his sinful flesh for years. He loves money. Oh, let me be the treasurer. I love you, Brad. You're a good treasurer. Um, this is no like punching you. I love you, brother. We're good. There's no side marks there. But I want to be the treasurer. He, he's a great treasurer, by the way. He really is. He didn't even beg to do it. He said, I'll do it if you want me to. Totally opposite of Judas. Judas wants the debit card, the bank account. He wants the bag. He wants the moolah. Not because he cares about people or stewardship, but because he loves money. Satan did not make him do anything his heart did not always want to do. Friends, we give the devil too much credit and we don't put to death our sin enough. He loved his sin and the devil shows up when his love for sin had grown so big it was just throwing bait out for an animal. Friends, we should also not overemphasize God's sovereignty to downplay man's responsibility for his actions. God is sovereign. Amen. Praise the Lord. We put our head on the pillow at night on that. But notice again how Jesus talks about his betrayal. In side-by-side -side fashion, he's given them a crash course in systematic theology of what theologians call compatibilism. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, not as enemies, but in parallel truths. Notice what Jesus says. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God's sovereignty. 
It was prophesied. It was foretold. The invisible hand of God. But woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Man's responsibility. It would have been better for that man if he would have never been born. Friends, men are sinful. Men are held responsible for their words and actions. No one goes to hell because of the devil. And only people who go to heaven are those who've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And the more light and truth we receive from God, the greater the judgment will be if we don't turn from our sins and trust in Christ. Friends, for Judas, it would have been better for that man to have never even lived than to have seen and heard everything he saw. Thomas Goodwin once succinctly but soberly said, Judas heard all Christ's sermons. Hearing sermons from God's word does not automatically mean you will be saved. Having a Bible on our shelves, listening to podcasts, buying Christian books, joining this church, being baptized, all of it, if our hearts have not received, heard, and responded in faith, and obedience, it's greater judgment on us. To whom much is given, much is required. CCBC, pray for two things. Pray this church would be faithful in expository preaching. Prayer number two, pray that we would be expository listeners, that we actually respond in faith and obedience to what we hear. In this section, we see a devilish disciple exposed, but number two, we see a meal we must always remember. Look at verse 22 with me. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know what's interesting is Jesus tells these two disciples, Peter and John, go prepare the Passover meal for us. And once everybody shows up, Jesus serves, feeds, and prepares a meal for them. Jesus here supplants and transforms the meal into a feast, not merely about bread or wine, but a feast about himself. He takes the bread in front of these men and he says, gentlemen, The bread is a visible sermon of my body. He takes the cup of wine and he says, the wine is a visible sermon of my blood. 
taking the imageries of these physical elements. They were eating and drinking right in front of Jesus. He was heightening their senses and raising their eyes to a greater reality, much greater than the exodus. Much greater than the Passover that Moses and Aaron saw. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I am the bread you will now feast on for the rest of your life. I am the cup of blessing that you will drink from and give thanks to God for for the rest of your days. Without the bread or the wine actually transforming into anything, that's heresy, that's a doctrine the Roman Catholic Church has taught and propagated for centuries, and it's error. The Passover here gets replaced and supplanted by a greater supper for the church today to enjoy that the Passover was pointing to. You see, we call it the what? The Lord's Supper. Exodus 12, it was the Lord's Passover. What is Jesus saying? I am the I am you were reading about back in Exodus 12. From eternity. I am God in human flesh. Here we see Christ having a meal of communion with his disciples, having their hearts raised to him as they would remember his sacrifice when he was gone. Jesus here was teaching that the Passover, friends, was a greater deliverance and a greater exodus that was yet to come, an eternal salvation for sinners, that the promised land, The temple, the sacrifices, and the priesthood were pointing to. Oh, but friends, this time the priest would not offer a lamb for the sins of the people. This time the priest would take off his own garments and offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice by the shedding of his blood. Friends, that's why in the passage that Greg read in 1 Peter 1, that Peter says it's the precious blood of Christ that is a lamb without spot or blemish. Friends, the temple is Christ's body. The cross is Christ's altar. The lamb who would be slain would be none other than the lamb that only God could provide, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John the Baptist said when he was getting fanfare and people following his ministry? He said, whoa, 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 I'm not the Messiah. John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, Christ is our Passover Lamb that has been sacrificed. Oh, friends, keep in mind Exodus 12 in your mind for a minute. When God saw the blood on the doorpost of the houses. He promised he would pass over them in mercy and pronounce judgment on those who did not have the blood. Oh, friends, that means this. If the blood of Christ has been shed for you and your faith is resting in his blood, in his sacrifice, there's no condemnation for you. Judgment's been swallowed up for you. Judgment has passed over you because judgment fell on Christ for you. And through his own blood, his perfect life, his death on the cross, it ratified God's new covenant with his elect people. 
Friends, in the new covenant, God pledges and promises to come back for his people and join him in his kingdom in the fullness. Look at Mark 14, 24 and 25. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Friends, have you ever asked the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die such a horrific, inhumane death? John Owen has said, if Christ had not died, sin had never died in any sinner unto eternity. There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. What does Jesus' blood of the covenant language here? How does that have anything to do with my faith and your faith today? Friends, Jesus purchased our sin debt, and he purchased it in full. What's one sin of many that he purchased? He purchased our unbelief, which is sin. And you know what he gives us in exchange? He gives us faith. He gives us the gift of faith to trust him, to have our eyes open to him. Faith is a gift from God in the new covenant. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Philippians 1, 29. And friends, that means the promise of the new covenant that was foretold in Jeremiah 31 and fulfilled in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 in Christ. Friends, what is that promise for those who put the faith in the blood of the Lamb? The Lord says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, when we come to the Lord's Supper every month, it is not Jesus saying, you failed. It's Jesus saying, it's done. When you come to the Lord's Supper, it's not Jesus, will you come down and make us feel better? No, Jesus, bring us up to you. We as Christians proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember his body and blood at the supper. We rest assured that the new covenant says he will keep us. And that's what brings us peace. He has paid it all and he's enabled us to leave it all and live for him friends that's one of the most encouraging promises jesus ever makes his blood was shed to ratify a covenant that promises that god who begins a good work in us will complete it all those that the father draws to himself he will keep and raise on the last day Friends, that's because the new covenant guarantees every sheep that Christ laid his life down for will hear his voice and will follow him and he will keep them to the very end. The Lord's Supper is his pledge, his promise. I love you, I will keep loving you, and I will love you for eternity. Keep looking to me. But thirdly, as glorious as that promise is and was and will always be. We see an overconfident disciple that will be humbled. Look at me at verses 27 to 31. 
And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to say this twice. I want it to sit. Do not overestimate your spiritual maturity with Jesus while underestimating sin's power to deceive us. Do not overestimate your own spiritual maturity with Jesus while underestimating sin's power, sin's ability to deceive us. You know why Christians or professing Christians are capable of still making really bad decisions? It's because we sometimes overestimate how spiritually mature we are. And we underestimate how powerful sin can mislead us. Peter did not lack confidence in himself. Did you notice the emphatic there? I will not. Even if they all do that, I will not. I will not. I will not. But you know what Peter lacked that day? A fearful trembling of his own sin. Jesus here hearkens back to the Old Testament at Zechariah 13.7, identifying himself as a shepherd that will be struck. And as the shepherd is struck and punished, the sheep then will be scattered. Who are the sheep? It's Peter and the disciples. It's Christians like you and me. Peter, the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth, the disciple who was full of zeal, yet at times full of himself and too confident in his own spiritual maturity, would fall really hard. Uh, friends, when we walk around with a big head, we typically fall the hardest. When you're top-heavy, it's a painful fall. Though he believed with all his heart he would never let the Lord down and never be ashamed of him, he would be humbled, Jesus said, by his own cowardliness, his own fear of man, his own faith that he thought was strong would shrivel up to almost nothing. Friends, in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at his denials. Some of the saddest parts of Peter's life. And yet, though Jesus knows that Peter will deny him, Jesus is not caught off guard. He's not surprised. He, he's not somehow sitting there like, I'm, I didn't know this was coming. He knew what Judas was about to do. He knew what Peter and the disciples were about to do. Friends, look at verse 28. Here's the ray of sunshine in the midst of darkness and failure. Look at verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Where's Galilee? It's where the ministry first began. He's going, I know you're going to fail me. I know you're going to be cowards. I know you're going to fear man. I know you're going to be sellouts temporarily. 
but I'm going to be raised up and I'm going to meet you. And what he was saying there is I'm going to restore you. There's a promise still yet to come. Brothers and sisters, what do we see from this devilish disciple that was exposed? What do we see from the meal we must always remember? What do we see from the overconfident disciple that will be humbled? Friends, we see our need for Christ 24-7. We need his once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. We need the scriptures to tell us how to live. We need his promises to be reminded to us that he will never leave us. Even when we fail, even when we deny him, even when we fall, his love remains. Friends, here's a strong warning that Peter needed to hear and we need to hear. Your pastor needs to hear. If we're not careful, familiarity can breed contempt. Familiarity can breed contempt. Friends, we can become too familiar with Jesus. We can become too familiar with the story of Easter. That it doesn't do anything to us anymore. They had the bodily, incarnate Son of God in front of them, communing with them, and they all turned their back on him. Oh, friends, do not overestimate your spiritual maturity with Jesus and underestimate sin's power to deceive. You see, these disciples like Peter, they heard him teach. They saw him heal, and yet they were faithless. Oh, but friends, do you see that promise there? But after I am raised up, I'm going to go before you, and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Christ's love for us does not change, but our love for Christ often does. Judas sat very close to Jesus at the table. He dipped his bread into the dish with Jesus and yet betrayed him. Oh, friends, be very careful of turning your discernment knobs off with the people who are closest to you. Be very careful. There's only one person you should give your whole heart to, and that's Jesus Christ. If one of Jesus' own disciples who ate one of the most intimate meals with him was most likely seating in the seat of honor, would dip his hand in the dish with Jesus and betray him, Don't be surprised if that ever happens to you. Peter, who claimed to love Jesus, eventually denied him when put to the test. So friends, how do we become more intimate with Jesus and not too familiar that we either despise him or deny him? I want to close with this exhortation from Martin Luther. Martin Luther says this, quote, the whole value of the meditation of the suffering of Christ lies in this, that man should come to the knowledge of himself and sink and tremble. If you are so hardened that you do not tremble, then you have reason to tremble. Pray to God that he may soften your heart and make fruitful your meditation upon the suffering of Christ For we of ourselves are incapable of proper reflection unless God instills it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do become before you now and we remember what Christ has done for us. And Lord, we identify with the failures and overconfidence even in the sense of betrayal that happened amongst his disciples. 
Lord, we pray that we would think well and think much in beholding Christ's confidence in this world. That you are sovereign over all things and you can be trusted at all times. Man is sinful and is held accountable and Satan is at work. Lord, teach us what it means to follow Jesus when all these three things could be going on at the same time. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.